Welcome to Mill Resource Radio, where we highlight military and veteran support organizations. Hear directly from organization leaders and those who've benefited from their services. Thousands of organizations exist, but if you don't know about them, how do you seek their help? Join us for discovery, access, and knowledge about effective military and veteran organizations sharing their missions and accomplishments directly with you. And now here are your hosts, Linda Crater and Les Davis. Good morning. We are so very glad you've joined us today. We have a wonderful program for you today, which encompasses several groups of people in the military community who really need some more attention. And we are going to be talking today to an organization called Military Spouse Behavioral Health Clinicians. And I think we all know that behavioral health is huge. And the mostly the spotlight is thrown onto the veterans and perhaps the families. And we all know that there is a shortage of behavioral health clinicians that can help that also know the military culture. And then think about those who are trained to help, who are having difficulty getting licensure and transfers and being able to keep doing their own careers in the midst of being in a military lifestyle. So we're going to be talking today to Ingrid Herrera-Yi, who founded Military Spouse Behavioral Health Clinicians, which is a new nonprofit that is doing amazing things. And so I would just love to welcome you today, Ingrid, to our show, and we want to hear more. Hi, good morning. Thank you so much for having me. Well, it's a Um, pleasure because I think that we all know there's such a big need. And there's a need for military spouse support in terms of careers and where they go. So can we start with how this group, your organization, started and your background? Sure. Um, a little bit on my background first. I'm a clinical and research psychologist, and I've been working. I'm a military spouse, <laughs> and I've been working with <laughs> our military families. Uh, our military families, our service members, our veterans, for about 14 years now in, um, you know, the work that I do. Um, but MSBHC was started way back in 2012, so about almost six years ago, um, and it was more of a grassroots effort uh, where we started looking at um, you know, why are we having more deaths, uh, you know, by suicide than by combat? Mm-hmm. And, you know, what can we do about it? And um, as a clinician and a military spouse, it was something that was important to me. I knew that whatever I did, um, that had to be a part of the work uh, for me. And I knew that I, there was no way I was alone in that. Um, at that point in my career in 2012, I hadn't really met other military spouses who were in the mental health field, mm-hmm. who were um, doing the same things that I was doing. Uh, but I knew they were out there. Um, and I knew that they probably felt similarly that, you know, there are issues with licensure that, uh, you know, we move around a lot. So we can't keep up uh, trying to get a job when we move, finally get one and then you have to move again. Um, so the licensure piece and employment and even for those who are just starting out, trying to find a school that's accredited that you can maybe do online. So all of these issues came to mind, and I and I thought to myself, you know, we need a place to gather, and Facebook is the easiest place for that to happen. Right. So I started it as this group, simple group. You know, there were about 50 of us early on, um, and we just, you know, supported each other, talked to each other, shared our um, thoughts and feelings about um, what's going on with our community and how we can help. You know, the point that is so poignant here is that it's such a great need, and yet we have resources right at our fingertips, right in our military community, that people are not tapping. And that's one of the reasons I wanted to talk to you today and share your organization with our listeners, because it's incredibly important that we utilize the resources that help in multiple ways. So when we're using behavioral health clinicians that are part of the military community, you don't have to train them in what is military culture. You, They already live it. They know. So as you have right. your Facebook group and you, you realize the effectiveness, I, I think it's wise to begin also with the fact that behavioral health issues are not limited only to our active duty reserve guard and veterans. It's also in the family. And one of the big things that we feel strongly about is our tagline is everyone serves. 
And together we make a difference. And so I thought that was particularly helpful today in that we talk about you you were lonely in your field. You were starting out, you thought you were, you knew you weren't alone alone, but Facebook was your only method. But now how big are you now at this point? Um, with our Facebook group and also our membership online, um, we are actually getting close to 3,000 military spouses and veteran spouses who are in the mental health field or interested in it. Fantastic. And so... Let's talk right to the point, too. There is also a very high suicide rate among military families who are under enormous pressure. And I I think most of our listeners know, but we'll reiterate it again. Those are not tracked the way veteran suicides are tracked. And even the veteran suicides, it's sort of a spotty guess work on how -hmm. this works. And so I, I think that you're tapping into an area that is of vital importance. Tell a little bit about how you support the families through these mill spouses who are clinicians and how, how they reach out to the families. Is it proactive outreach or is it that uh-huh. they come to you or both? A little bit of both, but mostly it's proactive. Um, it's funny that most people don't know um, that there there is such a large workforce of military spouses who um, not only are able and qualified to help but want to. Uh, this is our family. These are our families. This is our community, and we want to make an impact. We want to decrease the suicide rate. We want to increase help-seeking behavior, and we want to make sure the stigma um, is reduced for our community. And the best way to do that is through example, uh, through reaching out. Um, and we have people come to us as well, obviously, but it's a, it's a big task. And one thing that we talk about a lot at MSDHC is exactly what you mentioned, that military family um, suicide is not tracked. No, and it goes in front of the government every single year, and every single year it's passed over. And I'll, this is my opinion. You wonder if it's because they don't want to know the impact on the family members. And I find that very sad because you can't fix something unless you can measure it and figure it out and find solutions exactly. for it. But the thing is you have found some solutions by grouping those who are as passionate as you are about supporting the greater military community. And so how did you find this was received? Because it seems you grew very quickly. I did. I, I was actually probably more shocked than, uh, <laughs> than anyone. <laughs> as, as I said, I mean, I thought I was relatively alone. I mean, I knew there were more, but not as many mm-hmm. um, as I thought. And keep in mind, this has all been word of mouth um, in terms of its growth. Mm-hmm. Uh, so, <laughs> so I was very surprised, but very happy to know that there are so many of us that are willing and able to help our community. And again, we don't have to be trained in the culture because we live it every day, mm-hmm. which also affords us, you know, we're so passionate about it that, you know, we're looking to help. But the problem is there are more barriers in front of our military spouse clinicians than really should be, especially with the shortage of um, mental health providers that exist not only in our community, but in the civilian community as well. So how has this been received by DOD and VA? Are they aware of you? Um, we're trying. <laughs> it's really hard to get on their radar. Um, and what I'm, what I most see from my, my members is that they're having a very hard time uh, getting a job within either the DOD or the VA, that there are a lot of barriers um, what are some, some of them of those are related barriers? to, sure, sure. Uh, some of them related, of course, to licensure. Um, some are actually a lot of them are just largely unknown. We don't know why mm. um, our spouses are not getting hired. It could be the, you know, the federal employment process is mm-hmm. not easy <laughs> for most no, of us. No, and, it, and oftentimes um, it's also hire from within. Which is so difficult yeah. to to get around because how do you get around it? You can't get in it in order to be considered. Right. Yeah, it's, it's something that's really difficult to overcome. And our spouses are struggling also because there are some predatory practices out there when it comes to online education. Um, so they are promised, you know, this degree 
without knowing that, you know, they don't have the right accreditation. And so when they go and look for a job, they can't get it because it wasn't an accredited program. So we have a lot of that, believe it or not. And, um, that's disheartening. Um, yeah. So that's, you know, another big barrier for them. Other is supervision. In our field, you need hours of supervision and practicum in order mm-hmm. to get licensed. Right. And since we're moving around a lot, we can't create relationships where we can get supervision. So you're in a new, you know, in a new state or even country in some cases, mm-hmm. and they can't find supervision. So they have to wait and wait, and some, a lot of our spouses give up. Now, a question for you. Are you also at the same time, or is this a goal, building a network of practitioners who will supervise in various states? That is something that we are actually building upon. I've applied for some grants, Mm -hmm. hopefully, to help with that, with supervision. Mm -hmm. And also, uh, my goal is to connect the DOD and VA and civilian organizations that serve our military and veteran communities Mm -hmm. and our families um, to these spouses. You know, this is such a deep need because you're right. There is a terrible shortage as we go forward, and we know that the needs aren't getting lessened, and it isn't going to go away. And so, in, in fact, in many ways, it's latent, and things start to crop up after the fact not immediately. So even just separation anxieties and all of those transition periods that people go through, we're coming up on a break. And so I would love it if we could talk after the break about how you use the resources that you do have and how you promote other clinicians who are, or people who are interested in becoming clinicians, how you promote their getting there because it's a process and it takes time and it takes schooling and supervision, etc. And how do you help to build this force even larger so that it does become something to reckon with and something not to be ignored? So we're going to go on a very short break. We will be back and we are talking with Ingrid Herrera-Yee of Military Spouse Behavioral Health Clinicians, MSBHC, and we'll be right back. We're Mill Resource Radio, and we'll be back after these short messages. Are you a family caregiver in the military community? Join us on VeteranCaregiver.com. In the military and veteran community, there are 5.5 million caregivers of our nation's injured, ill, and wounded. Whether your family member served in World War II or in the most recent Iraq and Afghanistan conflicts, There are unique needs of military and veteran caregivers. Navigating any medical system takes skill and help in obtaining good care. Veteran Caregiver has access to a rich network of advocates and organizations to assist you. Find excellent resources, short informative videos, an active Facebook community, and empathetic support. Veteran Caregiver supports those from every service branch and those who served in any conflict. Need information on sandwich caregiving? EFMP or aging issues? VeteranCaregiver.com provides information and community to those managing busy lives with compassionate care. That's VeteranCaregiver.com. Support for those who care. We're going to continue talking about this wonderful network for military spouses as they want to become or are behavioral health clinicians. And, you know, Ingrid, one of the things you talked about in the first segment is that it's very difficult as you move around and where you're going. And yet those moves sometimes, sometimes permit for growth and learning. Uh, among the community who realizes that there are great needs. And I'd love it if you could talk about how your group can help those wanting to go into this field, how you go about guiding them, supporting them, giving them peers to talk to, answering their questions, so that maybe a period of time that is what you would call dormant for them actually becomes a useful educational time for them, for the next Mm -hmm. step. 
Sure. Um, at the very core of MSBHD is the peer support network. Okay. And we all know the research on how useful, you know, peer support is for our veterans, for example, was just as useful for our military spouses and veteran spouses who are struggling with all of the same types of issues in terms of employment and education and the, the licensure pieces. And so the peer support is, is primary. There's nothing like going into Facebook, into the group with a, a couple of thousand of others who are there to say, hey, I understand. I get it. Mm -hmm. I've been through that, and it's horrible. And here's what I learned, and here are some resources in that area uh, to help you. And there's nothing like just feeling understood Mm -hmm. um, and we cheer each other on when someone gets their license and when someone gets a job. And it's really a family, um, and it has that feel to it. But on top of that, we, we provide real resources. So we connect them to um, – we have some partners that offer some employment opportunities, MPLEX, for example, um, and other um, DOD-type contracts. So we try to connect people there. Mm -hmm. We also have um, compiled lists of – resources in terms of education. Um, we've, um, we've given them things like fact sheets that we've created that tell them about accreditation, that tell them about the right type of accreditation, mm -hmm. that let them know about the licensure um, picture in the state that they are going to be PCSing to. Mm -hmm. um, and so they have all of that information, all those resources. We connect them, and we also have something called the Day on the Hill, so a couple of times in the year, we get to go on Capitol Hill and talk to our leaders about the barriers and, um, you know, how they may be able to help with those barriers so that we can help our military families and veterans. And how is that received? Pretty well, actually. Um, we have been able to talk to quite a few um you know, congressmen and senators who seem interested and hear us. And, mm -hmm. you know, little by little, um, we've been seeing subtle changes. We're a part of, a, I'm sure, of a lot of other grassroots efforts um, that have been pushing a lot of the licensure pieces. But we've been doing this for five years, going to the Hill and talking to them about licensure. Mm -hmm. And even though we have licensure in all 50 states, um, what I'm hearing now and what we're trying to convey back to Congress is that um, not all of the frontline um, licensure boards in all the states are aware of these um, helpful Limitations. laws that are there. Yeah, yeah, they're not aware that we that military spouses have, you know, specific help in terms of licensure. Mm -hmm. So, so they'll call the licensure board and they have no idea that hey, you know, they have reciprocity in that state, so they are ignored or, um, in some cases. They don't believe them. Oh, <laughs> so no. We, we, yeah, yeah, they don't believe that there's actually reciprocity for, you know, military spouses who's moved to their state. So even though in all 50 states we have something on the books, mm -hmm. um, it's not translating. So that's been a really big barrier for our spouses because they're sort of left on their own to fight, literally fight, <laughs> the right. licensure board, you know, on, hey, you know, your state has reciprocity, which means I have a license in Alabama, and now I'm in Michigan, and you're supposed to let me just, you know, practice here. License for a license. Wow. But it's not that easy. It's not working. So do you work in each of the states to remedy that, to make it more or less a, a federal thing? Or is that what you go on Capitol Hill to do, to make sure that the laws and policies do promote this in each of the 50 states in OCONUS? Actually, a little bit of both. Okay. Um, we've been talking to them, but sometimes, you know, talking to Congress is very slow. So no, really? We've been doing <laughs> what we've been doing as an organization, ourselves, our leadership, is reaching directly to these licensing boards mm -hmm. and offering to educate them on these rules, right. on these, you know, the licensure portability and the acts that, you know, exist within their state. So that is something we started working on this year in 2018, uh, and we will continue to do for the next couple of years. Um, something else on the horizon for us actually to help with all of this is we want to um, try and create a survey to go out to military families mm -hmm. and their families um, to see what the landscape is for mental health. Right. Because we have a lot of big surveys out there, but nobody focuses on mental health. We want to do that. We want to see what the state of mental health help is for our communities 
is are there enough resources? We know they're not. They're not. But, right. But if we have a survey and we have numbers, mm-hmm. then we have something else to um, to work with when we talk to our leaders. Well, we have numbers that no, there isn't enough. Metrics matter. Yeah. Unfortunately, yeah. metrics really do matter, even though anecdotally you know what is going on. Let's talk a little bit about the fact that the challenges of the military and even in the civilian world, there's a huge mental health need, as we know and see on the news every single day. And as you go forward, are you that there's positive progress in terms of people understanding that this is a very worthy area to go into professional life with, that you can indeed be flexible with this once you are in a place where you do have the licensure and you've got the supervision. So it's a very positive thing to carry forward with you. You're just saying it has to be made easier to take state to state and uh, at other OCONUS military bases. Absolutely. Is that right? That okay. is absolutely right. That is absolutely right because, um, you know, the mental health field just offers so much, um, not just to those we serve, but to our families because they have a means of supporting their own family. Mm-hmm. So we're helping military families in that way. Um, and, you know, it's, it's, it's a great field if you're passionate about helping others. But there's so much more that you can do with that degree. Um, I, for example, I do a lot of research. You can mm-hmm. teach. So there's a lot of possibilities, a lot of ways that you can touch and impact um, military, uh, the military community. So you really can. We try and, to and, do that. Well, you're also bridging the gap sometimes between the military and civilian communities because I think that you find that one-on-one or community-to-community, the civilian community is very eager to know what they can do to help. And they really are. And the divide is broken further down if you can mingle with the civilian practitioners as well as the military ones. You're not trying to replace them. You're augmenting the skill sets that can be used to greater uh, health outcomes. Oh, absolutely. And speaking of the civilian community, I think it's wonderful that we are. Um, training them up that, Mm -hmm. you know, civilian providers are going out there and, you know, learning about our culture. Mm -hmm. But I think that in that push for that, we forget that we already have all these spouses and Mm -hmm. veterans too, not just military spouses, but veterans too, Mm -hmm. who know the culture and are just as qualified. And I think we forget about that. I I agree with you, which is why I think exposure and outreach is so critically important, and that's why I called you, because I think more people should know about this as an offering, because it's not as though there's a a glut of practitioners and it's it's a mess. No, there's a dearth of practitioners, and some people are still waiting two, three, six, 18 months for a mental health practitioner. And I'm guessing that there are some people right in their communities among your group that could help if the uh, hurdles were removed. Talk about what some of the most common issues are among military families that you see. We're coming up on a break, but we'll start now and we'll continue after the break. What are some of the most common issues? Let's start with the male spouses. Mm Mm-hmm. Um, well, we do a lot of outreach and we do hear a lot about depression, mm-hmm. um, and post-traumatic stress disorder, mm-hmm. uh, sadly, domestic violence. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, those are probably the top three mm-hmm. that we hear about, um, from military spouses themselves mm-hmm. and, um, their worries about their children and their children's right. mental health. Um, those are probably the top. Well, those are huge, and and they are, they are prevalent, and they are there a lot. And I, it's so funny because we are more connected than ever before with, as you'd already mentioned, Facebook and outreach. But it it also can be a double edged sword, where that kind of 
communication can be easily misunderstood, just like text messages Mm -hmm. can be misunderstood because you miss out on tone um, and that kind of thing. So depression, domestic violence, which I'm presuming you're including intimate partner violence, um, PTSD or secondary PTS, these are huge. And I think... There's a, well, there's a lot of research that supports what you're talking about. And there's a subcategory. You know, I work with, I, I run veterancaregiver.com. There is a very tight uh, correlation between intimate partner violence and those who care give for our wounded ill and injured. And that is really a frightening statistic because you're taking a vulnerable population and difficult to keep them going. So that's a subgroup that I see that really does need some help. So we are coming up on our break. And when we come back, let's talk about how we are so connected, but that the internet itself can cause some issues for us, such as bullying and Mm -hmm. miscommunication and and just missed engagement, and and it's a shame, but there's it's a double-edged sword, and so I think we mm-hmm. would be remiss if we didn't talk about something that is so prevalent and ubiquitous in our society, and how it affects our mental health. Everybody knows a bad post <laughs> can ruin your <laughs> can ruin your day, but it can do far worse than that. So I, I really would love to talk about that when we come back. We are talking with Ingrid Herrera Yee, military spouse behavioral health clinician's founder, and we'll be back after these short messages. Stay with us. We're Mill Resource Radio and we'll be back after these short messages. the millions of women each month who listen to Wise Health for Women Radio. Women are pressed daily to give more, learn more, and be more, often at the expense of mind, body, or spirit. Join us for revitalizing conversations on fresh ways to view your limited time, encouraging new, healthier perspectives. You provide a special spark to those around you, and you manage many roles, entrepreneur, mom, wife, coach, friend, daughter, and more. Here's a great way to inspire and nurture you. On Wise Health for Women Radio, host Linda Crater and her amazing guests share how to move toward your wishes and dreams and find what is possible in your busy life. If not today, then when? Take steps to flourish over 40. Join us on Wise Health for Women Radio, Tuesdays at 11 a.m. Eastern Time, on iTunes, and more at wisehealthforwomenradio.com. Helping women thrive. Welcome back. Ingrid, why don't you talk further about the three big areas, the depression, domestic violence, including intimate partner violence, and PTSD among the families? Yes, it's, it's something that we come across, and we actually discuss quite a bit in our Facebook group and, um, and behind the scenes as well, is, you know, just this epidemic of, um, you know, we talked about social media and you know, that the bullying that goes on, which, you know, has not abated despite, you know, um, that Marines United group uh, being shut down last year, um, it's still going on. Mm-hmm. And, you know, there's still spouses and others who, who bully. And, um, you know, sadly, that can lead to, you know, depression and even, you know, suicide. Mm-hmm. Um, if it if it gets to that point, if it gets that bad, um, because you have to remember that social media for some people that's really their only outlet um, in terms of you know any kind of connection with others. Um, I think of a lot of young spouses who you know they're you know on base alone, and um, you know if they're on base at least they can have some you know interaction. But for some, it's you know that's their major point of contact with most people, and. Um, you know, being targeted like that, it's bullying. <laughs> it's mm-hmm. bullying just like it is for our kids. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's just as detrimental. It could lead to depression, anxiety, um, and even, like I said, to the point where, you know, they may end up taking their own life. Yeah, it's 
We are more connected than ever, but we are separated and isolated more than ever because of it. I think there's a lot of room for misunderstandings on uh, the social media, but I also think part of it is that we're all reading things on our phones. Where yeah. you can take something out of context that if you had a big screen and a desktop, you might see that it was part of a greater context. But when people are being notified and that ping is going off all day long, you may be entering in the middle of a conversation and misunderstand. There's there's such room for misunderstandings. I would urge people Absolutely. on on, uh, on social media to to take a step back if you think you just read something that's offensive and it may indeed be offensive but it might be that you right. read it quick too quickly yes absolutely and beyond social media i mean our community is is suffering mm-hmm. um just like any other um but you know there are some unique pieces to that such as our caregiver community mm-hmm. um especially when you're talking about um, intimate partner violence is something that we discuss quite a bit um, in our group as well um, and the concerns that we have, especially in, within the caregiver community where sometimes it's not acknowledged right. or, not, you know, sometimes the caregiver is not supported um, and, you know, that's, you know, that's a problem um, because violence is not a symptom of, you know, a mental health disorder Mm-mm. such as PTSD. Um, so... The dynamic is so them. <laughs> difficult. Yeah, but it's so difficult in the caregiver community because you're taking the culture of the military, which is strong, trained, can sustain anything. And yeah. when you're injured or, or wounded, you are no, you're not the same person you were before and it makes you feel vulnerable. And some people are not doing well at being vulnerable and needing to be dependent. It's it's the antithesis of the culture that they mm-hmm. started in. And Absolutely. that has created a lot of research. And you said you have done some research as well when we were on the break in this mm-hmm. community. And it's it's a very difficult time because you're looking at a vulnerable community to begin with. Absolutely. And then you take on another element. So when we're talking about being on social media, what are some tips that you would tell your military families to be aware of, to maybe give themselves mm-hmm. a checklist so that they don't knee-jerk respond? Because we've all had bad days where we simply just Absolutely. go, that's it, I'm unfriending that person, I'm done. <laughs> and maybe that's yeah. warranted. But that seems sort of a, I mean, that's that isn't always a satisfying ending or outcome. Mm-hmm. Right. So what would you suggest? I mean, First, I mean, limit the time that you spend online. Um, you know, nurturing those relationships offline are so important. Uh, you need to have people that support you in real life. Um, so that would be number one. Mm-hmm. Number two, when you see an attack or something very negative, um, before you respond, sort of take a step back, take a breather. Mm-hmm. Uh, because our first gut instinct or response, you know, might might just make matters worse for you or for the person that you're responding to. Mm-hmm. Um, so just sort of taking a step back and taking a breather, um, clearing your mind, um, then going back. And one thing that I always tell people is, you know, read it and reread it as if, you know, you're not the person, uh, mm-hmm. you, that wrote it, like understand, you know, what it might look like out of context, because there's no emotion, as you said before, there's no context mm-hmm. to what you're writing. Mm-hmm. Um, so it can be misconstrued. And if you do happen to write something, um, I don't think we, we all do enough of the, you know, mea culpa, like, you know, right. I was having a rough moment. <laughs> right, right. <laughs> you know, not letting it get so out of control. Um, and sometimes it, it does have to come to unfriending people if they're so negative and, um, you know, they're attacking, then you've got to take that step to protect you, you know, and your well-being. But my hope is that if you, you know, do these things, you, you, Certainly look at, you know, the context, make sure that, you know, what you write is not misconstrued and take a breather before you write. You know, those, those small things can, can make a huge difference. Cause in the heat of the moment, we can really end up, you know, making things a lot worse. We well, are absolutely right. And I think that if we just stop and heed that, 
it would make an enormous difference because that knee jerk, that anger, that flash, we don't know what's happening at the other end for people. And that's the difficulty with anything online is that it, it, it is just simply not able to interpret the way you could if it was face-to-face. I'm intrigued that you also said make time for face-to-face time, in-person time, because mm-hmm. I think it's all too easy these days. You've got Amazon Prime. You've got your groceries can be delivered. You don't have to leave your <laughs> yeah. house, and yeah. you can become very reclusive, even agoraphobic, as your world mm-hmm. shrinks. And I think, right. you know, military families are very resilient and very good at knowing how to thrive where they're planted. And yet, mm-hmm. it's also possible to fall into a funk, for lack of a, yeah. a more umbrella term, and allow your world to become very small. And yeah. so how would you suggest people go out and make sure that happens? Schedule things with friends or go have a cup of coffee or go to a public Starbucks and talk to people or a Barnes and Noble. I mean, what sort of mm-hmm. practical advice would you say, don't don't get yourself isolated and stuck? Here are some simple things that are low anxiety for you to do. Sure. I mean, that's absolutely the, the things that you suggested are a start. And if you're living on a base, there are always events. Um, and I know everybody kind of rolls their eyes when you say FRG, but, <laughs> but you can meet a lot of people there that you can meet after for coffee or um, if you have children, play dates. Um, you know, at your place of employment, you know, take a chance and, and, you know, ask someone there that you connect with for dinner or coffee or, or drinks, you know, just, mm-hmm. just, you know, look around. Um, if there's things that you like cooking, take a cooking class, meet people there. Um, for MSBHC, for example, we have meetups in person because we know how important that is. Right. So we have chapters in different states and even Oconus for, for, you know, other military spouse clinicians to get together with each other. And, you know, vent and talk about, you know, job opportunities and just, just, you know, just spend time together, um, you know, not behind a screen all the time. <laughs> well, it builds trust. And, mm-hmm. and while you have all this commonality, I, I think we've all been burned or betrayed at times where we gave trust where it wasn't warranted. And so by seeing somebody in person, you're able to interpret the communication in a way you can't really online. And, and as you say, meeting meetups are a great way. And there are a lot of um, opportunities in communities to get together. But it is sometimes hard to make yourself take that first step. So oh yeah, I, I think making sure you don't allow yourself to get as isolated is just as important as knowing, hmm, why am I wanting that third glass of wine at night? Mm-hmm. I mean, mm-hmm. there, there are just certain things that, that you know, maybe we, we plant some seeds today to people who mm-hmm. are listening. Let's talk about our young children and the impact of the military lifestyle on them and then move into the middle uh, age, middle school age and high school because mm-hmm. I think they have three different categories of issues to manage. And if I'm wrong, go yeah. ahead and say so. Mm-hmm. No, um, a little ones, for example, a lot of it is around attachment because mm-hmm. they're just forming attachments with mom and dad in the world, <laughs> you right. know, and their teachers and, you know, preschoolers, you know, they're, they're up here. Um, so for them, it's all about feeling safe and, and predictability. Um, and so, you know, for our little ones, for example, in, in a deployment, it may seem like, you know, they don't know what's going on, but they do. Yes, they do. Um, they're small, but they know. Um, and that's when you start seeing stuff like they regress. So they had been toilet trained and now they are having accidents. Mm-hmm. Or, um, you know, all of a sudden, you know, little Johnny bit another child in preschool and that never happened before. Mm-hmm. You know, those are the subtle ways, not so subtle ways <laughs> that they show us, that they show us that they're in pain, that they, mm-hmm. that they know what's going on, that, you know, daddy or mommy's not home and they miss them. So, you know, for the little ones, it's, it's very, you can, you can see it in their behavior change, you know, um, and so those are the kinds of things to be alert for is, you know, any change from the norm. If they That's, used to sleep a lot and now they don't, if they're, you know, toilet, they were toileted, now they're having accidents. If they're trying, starting to have trouble behavior-wise at school, mm-hmm. that, you know, or, uh, you know, in their play group. 
those are the things you look out for with the little guys. Well, I think it's important that we're coming up on our break. Um, so we'll do the little guys now and then we'll move into middle and high school after the break. But I think you're absolutely right. But what you're talking about is also being very observant as a parent. And if you're mm-hmm. suffering at the same time, it's hard to be all things to all people. And let's face yeah. it, moms have a big job to do no matter what. Mm-hmm. And, and yet, it's so super important. So keep an eye on uh, behavior. Um, I, I presume keeping an open communication and and being available and accessible, yeah. because as you talked about, was attachment really important, safe and predictable. I love that you use those words. That's very helpful. Mm-hmm. So unfortunately, we're going on our final break of the show. We'll come back and we'll talk about middle school and high school children and their needs mm-hmm. and how this group can help us. So we're continuing our discussion with Ingrid Herrera-Yee, founder of Military Spouse Behavioral Health Clinicians, MSBHC, and they're building this network across the nation that is helping our military families and also helping our military spouse health clinicians. A remarkable group. Stay with us. We have just a very short break, and we will continue our discussion, learning more about this group that can help help us all face the mental health crisis in our communities today. We'll be right back. We're Mill Resource Radio, and we'll be back after these short messages. Are you a dynamic woman? Sandra Beck and Linda Crater host Dynamic Women Talk Radio, bringing lively weekly shows in a roundtable format with influential guests from around the globe. This amazing tribe of diverse and accomplished women share their candid views on topics such as reputation, handling rejection, loyalty, what is sexy, overthinking, blended families, and much more. Discussions are joyful with freedom to address topics from various perspectives with candor, respect, and no judgment. These are the conversations you wish you could have with all your family and friends. Dynamic women have lived their lives boldly with unexpected and sometimes undesired turns in the road of life. Yet detours and bumps bring opportunity, personal growth, more authenticity, and a fresh outlook. Join our welcoming tribe of dynamic women each Tuesday at 12 p.m. Eastern Time, also on iTunes, and more information at dynamicwomentalkradio.com. Celebrating vibrant, charismatic women everywhere. Welcome back. I think we are painting a very vivid picture of why it is important for our listeners to know about your organization. We've, we've talked about the breadth of helping uh, spouses become clinicians. Those who are clinicians go across state lines for licensure so that you can actually help the groups that you're seeking to help. And now we're talking about the various issues among the military population, so the military spouses and partners. Uh, we've talked about the young children and their needs. Let's move into the middle schooler needs and, and signs mm-hmm. to look for, and then into the high school, if you can go in that order. I think it keeps it kind of cogent. Sure. Um, middle schoolers are um, actually a very stressed group because um, I think if you any of us think back to middle school, it was probably the most stressful time in terms of schooling because you are, say, in the sixth grade, you're a little guy, and then you're in school with eighth, grader, eighth graders who look like adults. So, <laughs> so it's a very strange <laughs> And they really mix, do. Right? Yeah, right. <laughs> they really do. <laughs> well, and I have a middle schooler, so I know this firsthand. Um, mm-hmm. And so, you know, our middle schoolers struggle because puberty is on its way. So they are trying to figure out, you know, okay, I'm no longer in elementary school, so I'm no longer this little kid, but I'm not yet a teenager. So they're still struggling to find out who they are, how they fit. Um, and peers become much more important in middle school than they were in elementary school. So you want to be liked. You want to, you know, be accepted. Um, and sadly, bullying kind of increases in middle school. Um, so you want to be careful to see if your little one, you know, your middle schooler gets withdrawn, um, if suddenly they're not talking. Um, if you see some personality changes, like they're angrier, 
because our little, uh, you know, our middle schoolers, when they're depressed, it doesn't look like crying most of the time. Mm-hmm. You're not going to see them with a sad face and crying. For most of them, it's anger and frustration, and that's how they show their depressed feelings. So lots of parents not knowing that react and, you know, there's punishments and this and that. And, you know, of course, if they're doing, yeah, discipline, if they're doing, you know, something very bad, of course, discipline is important, but you've got to dig deeper and, you know, be sure to know that they are, you know, they're going through a lot trying to figure out who they are, how they fit and how they fit with their peers and wanting to fit in. And when you add to that, you know, military life moves I mean, can you imagine, you know, being a sixth or seventh grader and then moving to another school in another state or even another country? Um, that's going to get those little guys down. So you're going to see them acting out. Well, also, Different from the little guys. Yes, but isn't it also the time where they're very aware that their behavior may affect their parents' careers? Uh, yes, absolutely. Which, which adds um, another layer of stress to the, the wonderful hormonal mix having at this time. <laughs> Exactly. So it's a really challenging time for the kids and for the parents. Uh, we often talk about teenagers, and it is a challenge. But mm-hmm. for, I think, middle schoolers, I think it's really a lot harder because, you know, they were they were a little kid, then you turn around, and now, you know, <laughs> they're growing up, and, and they're struggling. And, um, and so the best way to really support them um, is, you know, to get someone who's been trained in child therapy. Mm -hmm. play therapy, um, or even spending time getting down to their level and talking, just talking them through, even if they're looking like they're angry, giving them some space. I know one of the things we do with my son is just, you know, let him breathe and then come back later and we'll talk about what was really happening and why they got so angry. And they don't have the words for it at that age usually, Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. but, um, but if you see that it's, you know, peer interactions or, you know, this is where it becomes important to talk to teachers and people who interact with your child during the day because you don't see them and how they are with others. So um, this is where really being in touch with caregivers like, um, you know, um, after-school daycare, for example, or even Mm -hmm. during school, keeping open communication with everyone who interacts with your child so you know what's happening. Question for you. It's amazing how much we don't know. (laughs) Oh, and that's going to always be the case, I, I think. Is yeah. there stigma for the children to be um, engaging in talk therapy or play therapy as much as there is for adults? Not as much as for adults, I think, because it happens after school. Mm, okay. And so it's not necessarily something that the children talk about. Mm-hmm. But there may be some self-imposed stigma. So okay. the child the child might not really want to talk to anyone, um, not understanding what it really means. Um, so, so yeah, that, that can be, um, it can be a stigma that's more self-imposed versus from the peers who really aren't aware of that much. Cause kids get pulled out of class for various reasons and, um, you know, they wouldn't know why. <laughs> so, yeah. so yeah, it's a little bit less than with, uh, with adults. Although okay. a lot of adult is self-imposed as well. It's I was not just like you're say, advertising. Right. I, I think that it's not... <laughs> I mean, in certain circles, it's, you know, part and parcel of, you know, my weekly um, routine um, kind of thing for some people. And yet, mm-hmm. I, I agree with you that um, this community is a proud community. And they mm-hmm. they stand on their own two feet. But it it does affect everyone. It's, it's impossible not to. And so right. let's move into the high school age children. Or youth, right. I should high say more appropriately. Yes. And high school is where uh, we see more of a suicide rate. Mm-hmm. And it's actually something that um, a lot of our clinicians in MSBC and myself personally having a teenager, I'm very aware of um, and talk about and try to, um, you know, provide as much support um, as we can because our teenagers are, they're the ones that are facing adulthood um, and, you know, here, peers are as important. Um, here, you do see sadness and anger both. Um, so they're kind of a mix of <laughs> the middle schoolers and the little guys, where you see both. You see anger. Um, sadly, substance use uh, increases in high school. So it's something else that we need to keep on our radar is that sometimes they will cope, especially with, like, lots of changes and moves. We have our super 
you know, our super kids that we see um, online, you know, that are military kids that, you know, are high achievers, but they're like the minority. <laughs> Most of our kids struggle, mm-hmm. um, you know, with move to move, especially if it's high school age. So we have to be there to support them. They have less support than our middle schoolers and our, and our elementary schoolers who have a lot of, you know, eyes on them. And, um, you know, they kind of get lost in the shuffle in high school. Um, so, and we tend to as adults, as parents often move back a little bit more because, you know, everybody's like, oh, teenagers are so hard to handle. <laughs> you <know? laughs> so, so you kind of move back, but this is when they need you the most. Our teenagers are the most vulnerable to suicide, to substance use, even to, and um, you know, intimate partner violence when you've got, a, right. you know, these young couples who don't understand, um, you know, how to interact as a couple, and oftentimes it can end in violence. So, Do you, do you think communication is something that we need to work on (laughs) well yes but i guess i agree with you a thousand percent which is why i brought it up i think that communication is the key to everything in terms of relationships Mm -hmm. are there especially teenagers exactly they really withdraw they do and so what kinds of things would you suggest i know in my own case um i found that if i was if we were in the car together and i was driving that was less threatening and my children were yep. more apt to talk to me as an example are there other things that you would suggest when difficult mm-hmm. conversations should be held um and Absolutely. need to be held or or that the child person. feels open to doing it mm-hmm. i'm a big proponent and there's research around dinner table Mm-hmm. it's important to have dinner together. It's such a small thing, but it makes such a big difference. You don't necessarily have to talk about the heavy thing, mm-hmm. um, but it opens it up to your kids to be like, well, how was your day? Mm-hmm. You know, and even if they're not saying much, you know, well, how was that math test? Or, you know, they feel the connection. They won't acknowledge you. You know, they'll probably have their headphones on. And, <laughs> and you can tell them, you know, take those headphones off and, and listen and, you know, let's have dinner. And, and the simple consistency of we always have dinner together mm-hmm. means so much. Um, I can tell you from my own experience, when my husband was deployed, I always made sure we had dinner together and it turned into this tradition. So when my husband did come back, we continued it with him and it came became a source of comfort, even for the teenager who, who you know, wouldn't admit it. But when we didn't have it, he'd be like, hey, why aren't we having dinner together, you know? And he would open up more and more. It's something so simple, but just them knowing that, you know, this is our time and you're not going to be looking on your phone, the parents, you know, you're not going Perfect. to be watching TV. Right. You're just paying attention to the kids. And uh, it makes a huge difference. It does. Ingrid, unfortunately, our time is up, and I want to make sure our listeners have your website, which is msbhc.org. Again, that's msbhc.org. There's also a wonderfully active Facebook group, and you can find out more about Ingrid, the organization, and all of the topics that we've touched on today, which are quite varied. And Ingrid, thank you so much for your time today. It's been a pleasure chatting with you. Thank you so much. My pleasure. Wonderful. We'll talk again next week. Have a great week. Thank you for listening to Mill Resource Radio. For more information, go to millresourceradio.com.